Hi, my name is George Hill, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church. I'm going to be reading this morning out of Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 10, and then through verses 30 and 32. Hear the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once, for your people who you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned away from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stick-necked people. Now leave me alone so that in my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. The following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a god of gold for themselves. Now, if you would, only forgive their sin. But if not, please erase me from the book you have written. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we enter into this time of worship and hearing your words, I pray that they would penetrate our hearts. As we hear Matthew speak, Pastor Matthew speak, I pray that the words that he chooses to say are your words. Father, that they would penetrate our hearts, that we would hear your words and that it would change our lives that we would desire to honor you with our lives because we have heard your words for us. Father, I just pray today that we would experience you and your presence with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I love hearing you guys worship. You guys just like, you come in and you're like, let's go, let's sing. I love that. It's so encouraging to my heart. Open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, and if you do not have a paper Bible, there are paper Bibles below the chairs in front of you, and I would love for you to have a paper Bible, to bring a paper Bible. If you're using one of those grace Bibles you can find Romans 9 on page 1003, and if you do not own a paper Bible, please take one of those Christian Standard Bibles as our gift to you this morning. I uh, also want you to be, just make sure that you're aware, when I was telling you about things that are going on, you should have received something when you walked in today. It says on one side, Pathways to Growth, that shows the three different pathways that we want to grow one step closer to Jesus. And on the back, you'll see all kinds of things that are available to you. So that is there for you to see. Last week in our service, you heard Emily read the climactic end of Romans 8. 
I say climactic because it is the culmination of what Paul had been arguing about since chapter 5, slowly building, as he describes, God's redemptive work in the world to create a new humanity for himself, right? That's what we saw. If you look in your service guide, you can see that one sentence that we tried to summarize the entire book of Romans, chapters 5 through 8, is God creating a new humanity, Rescuing people out of darkness, delivering them into the kingdom of his beloved son, giving them life eternal and joy everlasting. So what do you think? Paul says there, look at chapter 8, the end of chapter 8. What should we say to all of these things? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else that he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? And who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Messiah's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even your own worst sins. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I am absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love for us because of the way that Jesus, our master, embraces us. The heading in the Christian Standard Bible says over that culmination of Paul's celebration of the work of God in Jesus. The heading says, the believer's triumph. That's a good heading, isn't it? I I mean, that's a pretty good description of triumph. But a triumph for whom? For everyone? And what does it mean when Paul says, that nothing can get between, between God's love and sinners. Sinners like Paul, like us. I mean, if that's true, that nothing can get between us and God's love, then even as Paul celebrates, why is he at the exact same time that he's celebrating Why is he so very, very sad? Listen to his words in the message, Romans 9. At the same time, in other words, at the same time that we can be so happy and celebrate the Messiah and all that he's done for us, you need to know that I carry with me a huge sorrow. It's an enormous pain deep within me, and I'm never free of it. Never. And I'm not exaggerating. 
or listen to it in the Christian Standard Bible. I speak the truth in the Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish myself that I were cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the sake of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption and, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, from them comes the very Messiah who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Paul is is one of my heroes. (laughs) I was just telling another Paul, my friend Paul Inge yesterday, how much I have loved being in Romans. There's this, when, when you spend a lot of time with someone, you start to get to know them better, right? Like you start to get to understand them better. And that ever since seminary, I haven't studied Romans like I've been studying Romans in the past few months. And I just feel like I'm, I'm growing in my understanding of Paul. And, and what I love about Paul is his brilliance and his intelligence. I'm, I'm kind of, at least I try to be kind of a thinker and, and I like to read books and, and Paul's that way. He's like, he's so sharp and so brilliant and he, He gives such amazing, complex, layered, integral arguments that build upon one upon another. I love his knowledge and how he connects things. I I love the lofty heights of the writings that he has given to us and and the challenge of them. I love how they stimulate my mind and my thinking and they get the juices flowing. I love how he describes and defends the faith through doctrinal depth and dialogue And I love his boldness, his courage, his his fierceness to defend that faith to Jew and Gentile alike, which often, right, like got him in a fair bit of trouble with Gentile and Jew, these these Jews, these, these brothers and sisters according to the flesh. But you know what else I love about Paul in addition to all of that? I love his heart. He's like one of those hard toffees that's squishy in the middle. That's the way he is. His reason isn't cold. And his arguments are not detached. Paul loves deeply. He cares about people. He cares about his people. You find no Spock here. (laughs) Cold and detached in his logic driven solely by logic and absent of emotion. Paul feels. Paul feels deeply. Sadness is what we read here. When you look at the words that Paul gives us here, it's, it's the sort of thing that people say when they are in the depths of grief or suffering or in a severe depression. When you're in that state, Everything that happens, every word that you hear, every sight that you see, 
it's colored by the fact that something has also gone desperately wrong. You can't forget about that for a moment. And I think we can relate to this, can't we? I, I know that you know. Because I know your stories. I know that you know what it's like to have someone you love, whom you deeply love, who is connected to you, who, who is maybe one of your family, one of you. For that, for that person to be in some kind of danger or going through some kind of incredibly difficult situation, and it doesn't matter how good everything else can be going in your life, they are never far from your mind. I've often said, you're only as happy as your saddest kid. Because the emotion of it is never off your heart. It's, it's always in your thoughts, right? Sadness. Great sorrow. Unceasing anguish. Enormous pain deep within you. You know what that's like. And it's... You know what this is like too? It's, it's weird, isn't it, how two emotions can be present in you at the same time? <laughs> isn't this just what Paul just experienced? I mean, he's just coming off of like this, oh, Romans 8, just like, blah, new creation, new life, like just all, and then, oh. We, we know what it's like to, to like go to the celebration, to go to the party and, and everybody's laughing and they're having a great time. And maybe you, even you are too. Like, like you join in and you find yourself laughing. Not even just a little bit, like you're laughing so hard that your belly actually hurts and at the same time, it only takes a second and you'll remember that deep pain that you're also carrying. We're, we're such complex beings and I love that the Bible recognizes that. I love that Paul models that reality, confesses and professes, wrestles with that reality. It, he says it elsewhere, right? And, and let me flip it. Always rejoicing and yet sorrowful. Like that. And Paul says, I'm not exaggerating. Sometimes we can be so unkind to people like in their desperation and grief and we think like, well, come on, is it really that bad? He says, it is. I'm not exaggerating. He understands that some might say that to him. Paul, come on, aren't you a bit over the top here, bro? I mean, how can you go from what you've just said to what you're now saying? Like, But there's no jesting or flippancy here from Paul. He's earnest. He swears it. I speak the truth. Look at it in your Bible. I speak the truth in, I'm speaking truth in the Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul says these words, these truthful words that he has just said about his unceasing anguish and his great sorrow and the pain that's enormous deep inside of him, he is speaking those words under the control of none other than the Messiah himself. And if he's under the control of Jesus in what he is saying, in what he is feeling, how could he possibly be lying? And more, his conscience is absolutely clear. It's right for him to feel this way. 
Now, it would be right to question that sense of Paul in his conscience because like, we could question that because who of us could say that our conscience is infallible, right? Like that our consciences wouldn't make mistakes in, in how they're operating inside of us because none of us is righteous, right? No, not one. Paul has already said that. But this is different. Do you see it? It's not his conscience alone that is testifying. It is his conscience under the control of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is unimpeachable. The Spirit leads into all truth. So Paul's testimony here bears the support of two witnesses. The Spirit of God and the Son of God. These feelings are real. And it seems to me that we are seeing that these feelings are justified. But just why, we should now ask, why is Paul filled? Why, why is he filled with such great and huge sorrow, unceasing anguish, enormous pain deep within him? And he says it's because his people, his family, look at verse three, his brothers and sisters, his own flesh and blood, the Israelites, well, they're damned. They're cursed. They are cut off from the very Messiah that could bear their curse and carry their shame and deliver them from their sin and provide them with salvation. Have you ever been in a little convoy with some family and friends, like you're, you're traveling someplace. You know, and especially I think, I think of the days before we had these little bricks of silicon in our pockets that would always tell us where we are, which has just been a huge salvation for me who is geographically challenged. I still use GPS in Salida, like when I'm in town, just so you know. So, you know, you had maps, right? Like, okay, and we're, we're all like, okay, here's the directions. Here's where we're going. I'll be in the lead car. You're going to be in another car. and be in the other car. And you know, you're, and you know how like, you're driving along, right? And, and you know, okay, we're, we're turning off here now. I, this is the ramp. You know, it's ramp 304. We're all taking it. And you turn off on ramp 304, and you see those other cars just go right on straight. <laughs> and you, what, what are you, ah, no, 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 no. No, no, come back. I, oh, I'm on a ramp. I can't turn. What do I? Ah! And you didn't have a cell phone to call, right? And even if you did, there's still like in that moment, in that moment, like right when that happens and you separate, you just get like that pit in your stomach, right? This is Paul. He's on the right path. He's on the right road. He's got the directions to the Messiah. He's so happy and he's so excited for the journey and for the destination and for the fulfillment of everything that's in Jesus. And he's got all of his people. And then all of a sudden, they, they take a wrong turn. And he's watching in horror as his brothers and sisters as kinsmen according to the flesh. They go the wrong way. Narrow is the path, broad is the way. They're on a path to damnation. 
And his anguish is so deep as a representative of the Messiah, as one given the mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus. His anguish is so deep, his sorrow so great, the pain within him so enormous that Paul is willing to entertain the unthinkable. Paul is willing to desire the impossible. You see, the same man who has reveled far beyond any of the other New Testament writers on the glories of being in the Messiah, of being joined to the Messiah, now says that he could wish that he himself was cut off from the Messiah. The same teacher who has just written that he is absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, unthinkable or unthinkable, unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us, now says that he himself wants to be cursed. He wants to join the damned. Why? I think he wants this because of two loves in his life. First, he loves his people. He loves his people. And second, he loves God. And he loves the promises of God. And he loves the covenants of God. And he loves the reality of the faithfulness of God. And what's remarkable in this moment is that th- those two loves come together. He sees that those two things cannot be separated. If Paul's people, the Israelites, who are God's people of the covenant, if they are damned, does that not call God's word into question? Doesn't it put his faithfulness at risk? Won't this result in people asking, can we trust God? Which we'll spend next week on that question. But for now, Paul cries out, if I could stand in for them, let me do so. Let me save them. Let me protect your word, God. Damn me. Hmm. I, I don't think that what Paul is doing right there is an accident at all. I think Paul, while genuinely speaking, I don't think he's putting on a show. I I, I don't think he's play acting. I think Paul is also deliberately replaying something that has happened before, something he remembers in the story of God because he knows the whole story of God and his dealings with his covenant people, the Israelites. You see, Paul is a Pharisee. He's an excellent Pharisee. He knows the scriptures. He's memorized them since he was a wee lad. He's intimately familiar with the history of his people. He has, he has seen all of this before. So turn with me to Exodus 32 in your Bibles. Exodus 32. Because may, maybe you've seen this before too, but maybe you hadn't seen this connection. After their deliverance from Egypt, God led the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And in that place on the mountain, he reveals himself, right? We know these stories. We, we, if you've been in the church, you grew up in them as a kid. I mean, maybe some of us, do we remember flannel graphs? <laughs> he speaks to Moses and the people in the midst of cloud, thunder, and lightning. 
people trembled rightly at the awesomeness of his holiness as they listened to the declarations of his commandments. And while there at Sinai, Moses is led up to the mountain's top to speak with God, where he's going to receive what are known as the ten in the Hebrew Bible, the ten. We speak of them as the ten commandments. In addition, they received many additional laws. There's so many additional laws in addition to the ten that are given from God to Moses. Among them, look at verse 23 in chapter 20. Do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. Note that. And because humans are impatient, the people start to get frantic because Moses has been on the, t- on the mountaintop for weeks. And despite all that they had seen of God before Moses had left them, they get forgetful, right? And they gathered, chapter 32, verse 1, they gathered around Aaron and they said to him, come, make gods for us who will go up before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I mean, he went up there, we haven't seen him since. And so Aaron gathers gold from the Israelites and he fashions it into a calf, which is likely influenced from the bull god that they had seen, Apis, so many times in Egypt. And then tragically, God's people, his children, the Israelites, good night. They call a great festival in the name of this new god, in the name of this calf. They eat and drink, they sacrifice and offer burnt and fellowship offerings, they play music and dance, sing and celebrate in what was likely a drunken orgy, the likes of which had not been seen in Egypt, all to a God who was not God. And in a damnable and accursed act, they declare, Israelites, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They reject God. They turn away from him. They go in the wrong direction. They veer off the path on another road. Meanwhile, while all that's happening down at the base of the mountain, Moses is on the mountain, completely unaware of what's going on, but not God. He's very aware of what's going on even while he's speaking with Moses. And so he interrupts his dialogue with Moses and what he's doing with Moses to say this, Exodus 32, verse seven. God spoke to Moses. Go, get down there, your people whom you brought up. Okay, (laughs) that's funny. I didn't notice this until this morning. (laughs) Your people who you brought up from the land of Egypt had fallen to pieces. In no time at all, they've turned away from the way that I commanded them. They made a molten calf and they've worshiped it. They sacrificed to it and said, these are the gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Can you imagine how God felt in this moment? They're rejecting him. Verse nine, God says to Moses, I look at this people. Oh, What a stubborn and hard-headed people. Let me alone now, Moses, to give my wrath free reign to burst into flames and incinerate them. And I'll make a great nation out of you. Moses tried to calm his God down. (laughs) He said, why, God, would you lose your temper with 
what, look at this, your people. <laughs> you brought them out of Egypt. You know what this is like? Have y'all as parents ever with the kids, like the kids are just going off the rails and, and she comes in and she's like, you got to take care of your son. And you're like, uh, isn't he our kid? Not right now, he ain't. I don't even recognize him. Like, that's your kid. Take care of that. Neither one, Moses and God are just both like, they're yours. No, 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 no. They're yours. You brought them out of Egypt in a tremendous demonstration of power and strength. God, why would you let the Egyptians say, see, he added in for them. He brought them out so he could kill them in the mountains and wipe them right off the face of the earth. Stop your anger. Think twice about bringing evil against your people. Think of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you gave your word. What's he doing? He's calling God on the covenant. He's reminding God of the promises. You, you told them, I will give you many children, as many as the stars in the sky, and I'll give this land to your children as their land forever. You see, in other words, says Moses, if you wipe them out, God, how can you be trusted? What will happen to what people believe about you and your word and the covenants that you make and your promises? They'll look around because your people were damned and destroyed and they won't believe in your faithfulness. Your people, cursed, damned, could call your trustworthiness into question. And while God pauses on the mountain, Moses descends from the mountain. And when he sees the great rejection of God by the Israelites for himself in vivid and vulgar display, he confronts Aaron and destroys the calf. He calls together a faithful few, the Levites. He sends them on a mission throughout the camp to execute all the leaders who had led in this uprising and rejection of God. As one author notes, from a human point of view, Moses had thus dealt with the sin. Aaron was rebuked. The leaders were punished. The loyalty of the people was at least temporarily reclaimed. All seemed to be well. Seemed to be well. But all was not well because God was still on the mountain in wrath. Moses had spent weeks talking with God. Can you imagine that? <laughs> he had received so many commandments and instructions for how his people right, for how his people could live in the presence of a holy God. He had been hearing that for weeks directly from God. So who was he to think that what he had done, this little effort to clean up this mess, could be enough when he had heard all these things about what it really means to be in the presence of a holy God? And so night comes on, right, and that darkness turns into a new day, and Moses knows he must go back up to the mountaintop with God. I love how... James Montgomery Boyce describes this. Listen, Moses had been thinking, maybe sometime during the night, a way that might possibly divert the wrath of God against the people had come to him. He had remembered the sacrifices of the Hebrew patriarchs and the newly instituted sacrifice of the Passover. God had shown and, and talked to him about such sacrifices that he was prepared to accept an innocent substitute in place of the just death of a sinner. His wrath could sometimes fall on another person. So Moses thinks, hmm, perhaps... And then the great man turns 
to the mountain with determination. He, he turns with what must have been great sorrow and unceasing anguish on his heart, mixed with two loves, a love for the people and a love for God's faithfulness. And reaching the top, Moses begins to speak to God. Listen, God, I get it. This is terrible. This people has sinned. It's an enormous sin. It's a damnable sin. They made God, gods of gold for themselves. I mean, you explicitly said, don't do that. And Moses must have been in anguish as he talked with God. In your English translation, you'll note, almost all the translations in Exodus 32, verse 32, look at it there, either has a dash or, or three dots. And that's to represent that the Hebrew text here is uneven. It's broken, I think representing the emotion of Moses, that his speech is broken. God, if you would only forgive their sin. Can you see him there, standing on the mountain, standing before a God of wrath, tears running down his cheeks, if, if you would just do that. But if not, if you won't forgive them, then erase my name from the book that you have written. Blot me out. Take me. Damn me instead of the damnable. Send me to hell if my damnation will mean the salvation of the people I love and if that would protect your covenant faithfulness that I treasure. God, this is a way out. Please take it. Take me. But what Moses could not know, Paul did. You see, what Moses has pled for cannot be. Moses offers to give himself for those he loves, but Moses can't even save himself, let alone, let alone an entire nation. For he too is a sinner. He cannot stand in for them. He is not the Messiah see, I think Paul, <laughs> I know Paul knows the story of Moses. Worship team, would you come up? And this is the great tragedy that Paul is now reliving. You see, in the same way that Moses watched the Israelites rejecting their God at the foot of Mount Sinai, bringing damnation upon themselves. So now Paul watches the Israelites rejecting their God, right? It's their God, verse 9. He is the Messiah who is God over all. And they are, they are bringing damnation upon themselves. And Paul has to stand there and say, Oh my God, it's happening all over again. They're rejecting you all over again. So damn me instead of the damnable. Send me to hell if my damnation will mean the salvation of the people I love and protect your covenant faithfulness that I treasure. This is a way out, God. Please take it. Take me. And yet, Paul knows that this cannot be. 
He knows that he cannot be a substitute for his people. He cannot die for them. But there is one who could and did. Paul had pondered this when he was writing to his friends in Galatia. The Messiah redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed, damnable life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember that the scripture says, cursed and damned is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse. He became the damned and at the same time dissolved the curse. Hallelujah. That is what this table is about, family. Jesus is a worthy substitute for us. Jesus stands in for the damned so that we might be delivered. And so the question is, there's only really one question left. Will you reject him? Will you reject him as the Israelites did? Or will you bow to him? Will you follow him? <laughs> your GPS coordinates locked in. <laughs> Don't you wish you could do that with your phone? Like you, you bring up Apple Maps and it says search and you just type in J-E-S-U-S. <laughs> bring me right to him. Or will you take another path, a way that leads to destruction and damnation? This is, for some of you this morning, this might be that crucial fork in the road. And it's my prayer right now here in this room or on that live stream that by the grace of God, because dead people don't make good decisions, actually they don't make any decisions, that he would bring you to life and you would see the beauty of Jesus and you would run to him and you would bow before him and you would say, I believe in you. Accept me and make me your own. And doing that, you could step into all the promises of God. <laughs> all the faithfulness of God. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So it's quite simple, really. Believe in Jesus. Seek to take one step to grow one step closer to him. I feel a lot of times like Paul about you. I want this so badly for you and then I realize I can't do it for you I can't only God can only the spirit can and all you have to do is come all you have to do is give up <laughs> lay your deadly doing down down at Jesus feet rest in him in him alone Gloriously complete. We're going to celebrate the meal that Jesus gave us this morning. One day we're going to do this with ginormous chunks of bread and butter. 
and wine. I promise you, we're going to do that because this is a symbol. And every so often, God's family should just have the big meal together that represents the feast that is to come. Because that's what this is symbolizing, right? So you don't have to be a member of Grace Church. All you have to do is believe in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of all of your sins and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to him, even eternal life. It's all you have to do. That could happen right now. Say, I, Jesus, I want you. I want to take hold of you. You could do that, and this could be your first communion.